0: The Constitution is not a system. It's like religious scripture. It's a set of fundamental rules that are laid down, and we can't deviate from those. Those were set up by our earthly sovereign authority, the people of the United States. Imagine
1: living in a country without a written constitution, a country in which laws are subject to a whimsy or a powerful person's interpretation, and there is no recourse for an individual who does not like or agree with the outcome of various legal decisions. In the United States, we live in a system subject to a written constitution. The document is, from a historical perspective, unique and also outlines particular ways in which the highest level laws of our country can and do function. Today, a near constant debate rages surrounding whether that document is frozen in time or subject to constant reinterpretation and revision. Join us as we learn about the history of the Constitution and the ongoing debate around its proper place in the country's legal system. This is Riches and Power, the podcast where we explore the industries and trends that shaped our world with experts renowned in their field of study. I'm your host, Alex Dubay, and I'm glad you're here as we explore topics both large and small, familiar and strange, and near and far. Join me as we learn about the forces that bent the world around them and built the world as we know it today. Jonathan Ganapp is an associate professor of history and the director of undergraduate studies at the Stanford University Department of History. He has a Ph.D. from Johns Hopkins University and has written extensively in publications ranging from the Boston Globe to the Law and History Review published by Cambridge University Press. Recently, he published a fascinating book called The Second Creation, Fixing the American Constitution in the Founding Era, in which he rethought our conventional understanding of the Constitution by examining the decade after its ratification. Jonathan, great to meet you. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you for having me. Delighted to be here. You know, I I always like starting with just an easy question, or what I usually think of as an easy question, which is kind of asking my guests to help us place ourselves in in time and so forth. And I I thought that this was going to be an easy question. But as I read more about your work and read your work, I I got just increasingly bamboozled. And so I don't think it's an easy question anymore. But what is the
0: U.S. Constitution as you think about it? You're you're an expert. What is it? The first thing I would say is that uh, answering that question is not straightforward. So you have, um, in engaging with my work, taken one of the morals from it that, that I would hope. It can seem like a question that is easy to answer. Isn't the Constitution the written document that we appeal to with such frequency to adjudicate our fundamental disputes and to understand why our system of government looks one way and not another. You can go and look at it. It has a tangible quality. There it is at the National Archives behind glass. But beneath that sort of surface level understanding of what it might be are some deeper questions that matter today but i think especially mattered in the 18th century when the constitution first appeared is it simply the written text is it a framework for government and as best understood is that is it a collection of fundamental principles and rules that guide us and orchestrate our conduct is it exclusively the thing that is written Or is there also content in the Constitution that is not neatly contained there or obviously implied there? Mm -hmm. And if we just reflect upon some of our more recent debates, a lot of things that people think matter to the Constitution, you would have a hard time noting that they're required by anything written into the document itself. One example being, why should the United States Justice Department be independent from the president of the United States. That's something people say a lot. The president can't just call up the head of the FBI and say, investigate my political enemies. But nothing about the set of norms that people think are important that govern that kind of independence in our law enforcement practices, (laughs) none of that can be found in the written constitution. So what is going on such that we think these norms that exist outside of it are important? So there's a deeper set of questions to reflect upon about what it even is when we refer to the U.S. Constitution. Yeah, it's a, it's a ball of yarn, and you you start pulling
1: on it, and I was living in blissful ignorance, and you start pulling on it, and then suddenly there are way more questions than I thought there would be uh, when I just thought about, oh, the Constitution, it's, it's the Constitution. Just a quick aside, can you just help set us in time historically, when was the Constitution written? And How did it come to be as as the country came out of the revolution, the
0: American revolution? The U.S. Constitution was written in the summer of 1787 at the Constitutional Convention, which is extraordinarily famous and is this this central touchstone of American civic life. Uh, But that was 11 years after the Declaration of Independence, prior to taking the fateful step to declare independence. North American British colonists huddled along the Atlantic seaboard were subjects of the British Empire. They decided, having grown convinced that their rights as freeborn Englishmen were not being adequately protected by their British rulers as they thought they were entitled to, to declare independence from that empire and establish this new nation, the United States of America. They immediately got to drafting constitutions, but not constitutions we spend a lot of time thinking about. First, they wrote constitutions in the separate states, so the Constitution of Virginia or Pennsylvania or Massachusetts, and then they drafted one. For the union as a whole the articles of confederation into the 1780s there was mounting concerns that this system of federal governance distributed power between this central government set up by the articles of confederation and the individual state governments was not working there were a lot of problems that the nation faced especially coming out of the war that they had to win to secure american independence rising debt economic depression all sorts of issues that needed to be addressed it seemed like the political system was in, in the eyes of many was not capable of handling them so a constitutional convention was called to revise the articles of confederation but a series of statesmen there took the pretty extraordinary step of saying rather than revising the articles we're just going to start over and put together a new system of government and that shocked a lot of people at the philadelphia convention that's shocked still more when they presented it to the public for consideration during the period that's known as ratification and it was out of that process of having those debates over what is our revolution why did we fight this thing what about the current system that we have isn't working that merits this new change it was out of that process that the US constitution that we still have 236 years later came to be and was the fact
1: that it was written down something that was remarkably unique back then, th- that emerged in your work as something surprising, at least to me, because I think we think these days, as of course, a constitution's written down. It's a constitution. You have to write it down. But that wasn't necessarily the case back then. And, and so was this a lightning strike moment internationally where suddenly you had a written constitution, whereas traditionally you didn't?
0: It certainly has come to be understood as such, and for reasons that are very important. But it's it's not as simple as And that happened in the moment, and people immediately started thinking that. And the reason why, especially in the English-speaking world, is because they had long lived under a system of constitutional government in their eyes. The British Constitution, which is still in effect in the United Kingdom, which is largely unwritten. It's not entirely unwritten, because what the British Constitution effectively was, was it was a jumble of authoritative documents, customs, practices, ways of governing, a set of institutions that had the authority of time. In other words, these institutions and the way these institutions have functioned have been around a while and have been doing it this way for a while. So with time and antiquity comes authority, something we're familiar with now because people will point to things that say, you're trying to overturn the way we've done things for the last hundred years. That's the way it's always been, right? You know, you're challenging these long-held precedents. We, that's not how we do things here.
1: In England, do you draw that back to the Magna Carta? Is that the the document where they kind of look
0: to? That was certainly one of the foundational documents. Magna Carta drawn up in the 13th century and beginning in the 17th century, a lot of English constitutional thinkers grab hold of it and make it into the modern thing it is now as this kind of foundation of the British Constitution. But there are other documents coming out of the Glorious Revolution of 1688 that kind of brings a resolution to this long-running struggle between the king and parliament. The English Bill of Rights is one of the documents that emerges from there. Uh, But a lot of the Constitution is unwritten. It's customary. It's based on people's understanding of what the essential principles of liberty are that Britain has long respected. The entire lead up to American independence is one prolonged constitutional debate between American colonists who are angry that they're being mistreated and British Officials on the other side of the ocean who are devising policy for the colonies and those who were loyal to the British crown in the colonies, having this debate over what the British constitution requires, what it allows, what it protects. This was the form of constitutionalism that Americans had known their entire lives. They had no trouble identifying constitutional principles, even if they weren't written. They had no issue arguing in these forms and appealing to these kinds. Of standards. And as a result, when they start writing their own constitutions following independence, they don't necessarily assume that those long standing constitutional principles that they thought they were fighting the revolution for automatically disappear as if they're replacing one kind of constitutionalism with another. So, one way to think about this is a constitution can be understood in a variety of different ways. Its principal definition in the late 18th century was a framework or system of government. So what a constitution was, was a blueprint for governance. It it specifies whether you have one house in the legislature, two or three or four, how your executive branch looks, what some of the powers, responsibilities, and privileges of those bodies are. But that doesn't mean that it exhausts everything else that we would now consider central to a constitution. That doesn't mean that your fundamental rights as a constitutional subject need to be specified in that frame of government. And so in England,
1: it sounds like the idea of a constitution was something a little more amorphous. It wasn't quite like we would think of it as, where you can point at the document and say, aha, that's the constitution. Exactly. It was tradition. It was interpretation. And I'm guessing here, and I've never heard it put in these terms, so it's really interesting to learn about this. But leading up to the revolution, my guess is, to your point about the constitutional debate, people's assumptions as to what the constitution was and what rights were and so forth were diverging pretty substantially on, on both sides of the Atlantic. Obviously, it led to the revolution, but that that assumption w- was subject to a wide gap between the peoples, I
0: would assume. Yeah, yeah. there There was profoundly different ways of understanding what the british constitution was what it required but importantly it didn't automatically lead to a new belief in 1776 that the british constitution had failed because it was largely unwritten and we need to replace that by something that is that is exclusively written and we can see that in the early state constitutions what are some of the most important things that you can write into a constitution that americans would point to today individual rights guarantees, right? They'd say it really matters that things are written in the First Amendment or the Second Amendment or the 14th Amendment. Well, only about half the state constitutions had declarations of rights. Half of them didn't. And the reason being that rights were not things that were created by writing constitutions. Rights were something you had as fundamental guarantees, either by nature or by custom. And the reason you wrote them down was to remind people, in case they might forget, or to reinforce, because, you know, reinforcement is never a bad thing, that you have these rights. But if you read the early declarations of rights, there's no, there's no concern that they need to be exhaustive or they need to list every single one, because it's just illustrative. It's, we all have hundreds of rights, and here's a list that points to a collection that are particularly fundamental. So part of the question is, that's one way of understanding written constitutions that the written constitution is the starting point not everything. We now live in a world where we've treat written constitutions as not just the starting point but we often talk about them as everything. In other words, the Supreme Court will say sorry if the right is not written into the constitution it doesn't have the same status as the ones that were. And people didn't originally think that. So there are ways in which that British constitutional thinking spills over beyond 1776 and The mere act of drawing up new governments that are written doesn't immediately delete that. So to your original question, what is the U.S. Constitution? When we start to realize how much of that prior tradition lives on, it becomes a more complicated question to answer. Does that
1: all put into a a different light, that famous phrase, you know, these inalienable rights, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, I think it was Jefferson wrote them, right? That makes me think very differently about those words. Was it somewhat odd then that they were writing down inalienable rights? Did people think of those as something you didn't really need to enumerate
0: to some extent? It was certainly something they debated. What is the best way to handle this? Because on the one hand, people would say, sure, you enjoy these rights no matter whether you write them down. But we've all seen what can happen. We thought we were the freest people in the world living under the British Empire. And then things went terribly awry when corrupt people got in power, as a lot of American revolutionaries claim. So maybe we don't need to write them down now, but 10, 20, 30 years from now, it'll be really dangerous if they aren't written down. But then other people say, but if you write them down, you will grow to fetishize what you've written down. And even if initially you didn't mean for the 10 things you wrote down to be more important than the 90 things you didn't, over time, people will assume those 10 are more important than the 90 you left out. Oh, that's interesting. Right. So there's this cost to enumeration. So there's this big question. Are we merely trying to call attention to something that is otherwise true? What the Declaration of Independence is saying the Declaration of Independence is saying the source of our fundamental rights is not because a king bestowed them, nor because a group of Democratic or Republican citizens got together and agreed on them. They are yours by your natural right. That's a very different source of rights than it has been enumerated in a constitution of government that people have agreed to. And they think both are important, and they're trying to negotiate basically what is the best constitutional technology, if you will, what is the best means to an end to ensure this going forward. And James Madison's views on this are particularly interesting because he initially was pretty anti-enumeration. He thought it didn't really make sense, especially in a system of Republican government. Anything that wasn't given to the government in terms of powers it could exercise was automatically retained by the people. So you should treat your rights as the big remainder. Some of that idea persisted in the Constitution. Wasn't
1: there a line that talks about anything not enumerated in this document is reserved to the states or the people?
0: Am I remembering correctly? You were remembering precisely. And if if um, you asked me at the beginning to kind of take us back to the 18th century, and I spent a lot of time with students and other scholars thinking about how the 18th century is different than the 21st century, and how has our constitutional world changed? Well, the parts of the Constitution you just alluded to are a perfect example of that. So those who are opposed to ratifying the Constitution are concerned about it. One of the things they emphasize is, well, it doesn't have a Bill of Rights. It doesn't enumerate rights, and we're really concerned. You're centralizing all this power in this new national government. This is really scary and ominous. We need a set of fundamental protections written down. Madison and the other Federalists say, you know, I mean, those arguments I just made, if, if this, is, this, this is unnecessary, we can just assume that any rights that are not bestowed are automatically retained by the people. It's really dangerous to enumerate, but they recognize, at least Madison does, they need to enumerate some. So to try to deal with the problem of, um, that I just identified, if you enumerate some, then what about the ones you haven't enumerated? He adds what becomes the Ninth Amendment, which says... Nothing in this constitution, the fact that some are enumerated, should not be construed to deny or disparage other rights retained by the people. So don't you dare look at the list of enumerated rights and from that conclude that there aren't other rights retained by the people. And then the flip side of that is the 10th Amendment, which is not about rights, but it is about powers, which says all powers that are not delegated to the national government are reserved by the state governments and the people. But we find ourselves in a strange place today because our constitutional world has changed.
1: Well, it seems like so much of the debate surrounds the two sides of this precise coin. You have, on the one hand, the risks involved with enumerating everything, and on the other hand, the risks involved with enumerating nothing. And that causes a, a lot of tension, to say the least.
0: It does. And, and the key question lurking behind all of this which is also central to how you think about constitutionalism, is not just what it guarantees, but who gets to enforce it. And we have evolved to have a system of judicial supremacy in which the Supreme Court has the final word on the interpretation of the Constitution. Hardly anybody anticipated that at the beginning or would have expected that. So we find ourselves in this strange position where the Supreme Court will say, yes, the Ninth Amendment Plainly says that there are unenumerated constitutional rights, but it's not our job to enforce or identify those. We really only have authority as an unelected court to enforce the ones that are enumerated. But because we live in a world now where nobody else enforces the constitution in quite the way the court does, a lot of people have complained that those unenumerated rights have effectively withered, which is often then why we have these debates, uh, over abortion or over same-sex marriage or over other sort of basic civil rights that we try to figure out how they slot in to the constitutional system. And it becomes complex because you have to figure out a lot about what you do with the relationship between enumerated and unenumerated rights that is not easy to answer, precisely because in the 18th century, the relationship between writtenness and unwrittenness was complex. Was it Marbury versus Madison, that Supreme Court decision?
1: that you were, you were touching on just then? That is how it lives in our civic culture
0: that Marguerite okay. v. Madison lays down that principle. It is it is more complicated than that. The court um, was effectively just saying in Marguerite v. Madison, we also get to weigh in, not we alone get to decide, in part because the court was so weak back then. And evidence of that is the court spent very little time reviewing or striking down federal statutes for most of the 19th century. So the, the real origins of judicial supremacy come after the Civil War. But that was, the Barbary e. v. Madison was the, the seed of that idea, so to speak. You could certainly argue that. It's a very, it's, okay. a, it's a striking decision for a lot of reasons, and it is certainly remembered that way in 1803. I want to say that's that's certainly what I learned, I think, in middle school or high school or whatever I, it was. I have no doubt. So
1: we have this idea that I, I never crossed my mind, but the, the fact that the Constitution was written in the U.S., and I'm I'm assuming here that was fairly unique internationally. There weren't many precedents, or were there any precedents for a written, national constitution?
0: Not quite of the kind that the Americans settled on. They okay. would point to the fact that they had colonial charters under the British government for decades going back. So in a lot of cases, they would say, well, what is the Massachusetts constitution, but not a continuation of our of our charter that laid out our colonial government. But certainly there's something revolutionary and significant about drawing up a framework of government, adding to it a declaration of rights, Doing so in special constitutional conventions with a real intentional purpose and then being able to have that marker. I mean, this is what happens when you write things down. They, they can have unintended consequences because people start pointing at that written thing and investing it with a particular kind of authority and emphasizing its textuality in ways you maybe didn't anticipate. And out of that emerges a big sea change that that becomes the standard model for doing constitutionalism going forward. And a lot of that grows from the American example. You, you wrote a piece in the Boston Globe that I thought was fascinating. And, and
1: the line that stood out to me, one of them was, initially, national leaders tended to imagine the Constitution as an unfinished, amorphous system that needed further elaboration. And I thought that was really interesting because, and this is getting into a, a really thorny debate, which we're going to spend some time on because it's it's fascinating when viewed in uh, with a historical lens as we are right now. But this idea that National leaders actually thought of the Constitution as an unfinished thing, is really counter to a lot of what we hear these days. Because I think a lot of times the Constitution is put on this this pedestal, like oh, that's the Constitution. We that is the the governing document for all these other documents, and and you you don't really want to touch it. And so I'm curious that it, it, it's kind of a radical statement that you wrote in the Boston Globe to some extent, uh, at least viewed through our, our political discourse these days. What makes you think that national leaders initially thought that the Constitution was something that needed further elaboration?
0: Yeah, it, is, it does run counter to a lot of our, our intuitions today. But uh, the answer to your question, what led me to think that, is pretty straightforward. They said it over and over and over again. Um, <laughs> but besides and, that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, and it's, it's really interesting because it takes us again back, it, it, you know, see the Constitution going forward, rather than looking back. So they've decided to move on from the Articles of Confederation and replace it with its new system. It's extremely controversial. A lot of people who are wary of the ways in which the new constitution will centralize more power in the national government are bombarded with criticism. So those who are defending it need need to come up with a series of rhetorical strategies to defend it. And one of the things they emphasize time and time again is stop comparing the thing we propose to some standard of perfection. One, human beings aren't capable of producing anything that's perfect. They are fallible creatures. But two, as those who defended the Constitution said time and again, you're simply misunderstanding the project of constitutional government. All we can set up is an initial blueprint, and hopefully that blueprint is sound, You know, like the foundation of a house. It's sturdy it will work. It provides something upon which you can build. But you have to continue building for a lot of reasons, but not least because it is very, very difficult, basically impossible, to anticipate what the future will bring and to devise solutions for all those emergent problems. So you have to delegate a lot of work to future generations. And in the short term, you have to delegate a lot of this work of specifying and fleshing out the Constitution to the first group of leaders who will take office under it. So the first federal Congress, in a lot of people's minds, was almost like a second constitutional convention because they had this bare-bones document to work with. Article 2, the executive branch. There's a president, but it doesn't say anything about exactly what kinds of other offices there will be in the executive branch. So they have to go about the work of creating those. There will be a Department of Foreign Affairs, what we now call the Department of State with a Secretary of State. There will be a Department of Treasury. There will be a Department of War. Will there be more? I mean, will there be a Department of Education, as we have now? And how exactly will all of these things work and be structured? Um, There will be a person at the top, the Secretary, a Cabinet head. How many officers will they have beneath them? What exactly will their responsibilities and duties be? How will those relate to what Congress is doing? Same thing with the federal courts. The Constitution specifies very little about how the federal court system will work other than there will be one with a Supreme Court at the head, but how many appellate courts will there be and how will that process work Um, by which cases enter federal court and make their way to the Supreme Court? And I think the deeper, deeper answer is provided most famously by James Madison in Federalist 37 as part of the Federalist Papers, he really addresses this complaint that the Anti-Federalists have, those who are critiquing the Constitution, that the Constitution is not just unfinished and imperfect, but it's also, the clearest marker of that is it's unbelievably vague and ambiguous and indeterminate. To them, it just looks like a series of written instructions that could be interpreted in any which way. This isn't gonna constrain anybody in power. And Madison says, well, let's reflect upon what is entailed in writing a constitution. And he has this long disquisition on the difficulties of human language and meaning, that when you're dealing with complex objects like federalism or the separation of powers, the relationship between legislative and executive power, human language is never quite supple enough to capture all the nuances or complexities. So no matter how you try to construct this intricate constitutional system on paper. As soon as you set it in motion and controversies arise under it, it is inevitable that there are going to be a whole host of disputes that are not easily answered by the kinds of things you try to specify ahead of time. That's just not something that's possible because of our limitations. As a result, he says, a whole bunch of controversies will need to be liquidated, as he puts it, or settled, through ongoing disputes and adjudications. The original Constitution that we set down in 1787, in the summer of 1787, simply is not going to be capable of resolving on its own all those emerging problems. So there's something to be be taken from that, that they thought the period that followed was going to be this continued period of elaboration. So James Madison very explicitly looked at the Constitution
1: as to mix metaphors, I guess, a foundation or a blueprint or, or something to that effect, you know, the, the way to build the structure, but not the structure itself necessarily. Was he alone in that thinking? Or can you give us a sense of, was, was he in the majority? Was, in the, was he in the minority? How did, how did the national discourse
0: center around that idea? Great question. I think he's certainly in the majority initially. Though it's hard to tease these things out precisely, not least because there's not just two opinions, but there, there are many varieties. But yeah, I mean, the dominant metaphor, to get back to your original question what is the US Constitution? When people talked about the Constitution as they were making it in the Constitutional Convention, Madison's notes emphasize this clearly. They were not talking about something they were writing, they did not regard it as a document they were drafting. They, were, they talked about it as a system they were building, and they often analyze, analogized it to things like the solar system, right? How do you ensure that a system that you're trying to set in motion continues to operate in the way you designed it? You know, I mean, a, a, imagine a solar system in which planets, the gravitational poles aren't set properly, so planets are flying off in every direction, and a few years down the line, the system is no longer a system. So in their eyes, you've got all these intricate moving parts. In the national government, you've got these different institutions, a legislative branch, an executive branch, a judicial branch. And then you've got this other layer, a vertical layer of of a central government and these individual constituent states. How do you set all these different things in motion such that they remain at equilibrium? And if you think about it in those terms, in those kind of structural, dynamic, physical terms. And so many of them did. You start to get a different understanding of what it means to make a constitution and what it means to preserve one. Because the job moving forward is, okay, we've got a schematic, we've got a blueprint. How do we fine-tune things or continue building them such that this system stays at equilibrium? Just calling it a system, I think, really reframes that
1: nicely because you sidestep the whole debate, which we'll get into in a minute here. Of well, is is the document? immutable or is it changeable? It, well, it's not a document, it's a system. That, that really makes you think differently about it.
0: Absolutely. But what we also need to understand is how it comes to be regarded as not just a system, but also a document. Yeah, how did that happen? How did people start saying,
1: uh-uh-uh, this isn't a system, it's, it's a document, it's, it's fixed? So
0: it's complicated? It has different moving pieces, it doesn't happen all at once, but it's something that happens as people begin really aggressively debating the constitution. So a lot of what I try to emphasize in my work is what happens as people have debates. All of the ways in which the, the the activity of debating something changes the very thing you're you're you are debating. So the one thing people can agree on early on, they can't agree on what the constitution is, what it means, whether it's good but they can agree that it's the thing to argue over. The easiest way to win an argument in America than as now is to say the Constitution requires it. The Constitution is on, is on my side. And for those who are very wary of what Madison and others are doing with the Constitution understood as a system, elaborating on it, using a fair amount of discretion, treating it with flexibility, one of the ways to try to limit that kind of discretion is to say, no, 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 the is not a system. It's like religious scripture. It's a set of fundamental rules that are laid down, and we can't deviate from those. Those were set up by our earthly sovereign authority, the people of the United States, and they can amend it. Part of the Constitution is a formal amendment procedure, but it's not up to us holding power under it to exercise that authority. So one of the first instances of this kind of discourse emerging is in the first constitutional debate that is little known today, but I think is endlessly fascinating in the first federal Congress over the removal of executive officers. So this can seem a very specific technical debate. It's a question of, okay, once officers are appointed, officers of the United States, such as say the secretary of state or the secretary of treasury, how can they be removed? Well, the constitution is silent on this. All it says is they can be impeached in the case of high crimes and misdemeanors. But To a lot of people, that was absurd at the time. You have to have a way to remove the Secretary of Treasury other than for impeachment for high crimes and misdemeanors. And what even is a high crime or misdemeanor? You could have that debate, right? Exactly. So William Lawton-Smith from South Carolina is hearing this debate and says, I don't know. When I look at the Constitution, it says they can be removed for high crimes and misdemeanors. That would seem to me the only way they can be removed. Either we are bound by the Constitution or we're not. We're not allowed to rewrite it. So, so you you instantly have this, this debate, instantly. I mean, there's not a moment's
1: pause and everybody's saying, oh, it's a document or it's a system. The argument's set.
0: Yes, but what's striking is pretty much everybody in the first Congress looks at William Lawton Smith and says, well, that argument's bananas. That doesn't make any sense. But it's a strong enough argument because he just keeps saying, but this is what the written constitution says, that they have to come up, they have to innovate answers to account for it. And they start having a debate over well, is it that the Constitution is silent and we here in the first Congress get to fill silences? All right, so that's one way of understanding this is, this it's is incomplete, it's unfinished, we get to finish it. Or is the Constitution actually speaking in, in quiet ways that we can't quite detect? And then the job of interpretation is to decipher those beneath-the-surface forms of constitutional speech. And there's a tension between that, too, because one assumes that there is a silence and you're filling it, and another one assumes there's only an apparent silence. But actually, if you read the Constitution more carefully, or, as a cynic would say, if you interpret it more cleverly, <laughs> you can pull from it commands that other people would not see at first.
1: It also seems like that's the beginning of this kind of the the drafter worship, or the founding father's worship, where you start to think oh, no, you know, those folks who wrote the Constitution were far wiser than us. So it's their words that matter as opposed to our, our modern needs. You can see that debate starting
0: immediately after the ratification here. Precisely. One of the interesting, ironic things that happens in the decade after the Constitution is written is the way in which people create, national leaders create, the idea of a founding moment that can be appealed to to help resolve uncertainties and contradictions or, or, or fill silences. So maybe the constitution is silent. Maybe the text of the constitution can't ultimately tell you whether you should do it in this way or that way, but Hey, guess what? I was at the constitutional convention, or I have a speech here from the Pennsylvania or Virginia ratifying convention when they considered whether to approve the constitution. And here's this guy from a while ago. Now, in this case, it's only maybe four, five, six, seven years ago. But it's the same general idea. This person in the past who is at this moment of founding and creation, they said this. So that's why the constitution means one particular thing and not another. And I would assume because
1: that person was there, that imbues their opinion with a little bit more oomph than yours might
0: have. That is certainly the, the self-serving way in which a lot of people make the argument, and it creates this new way of doing constitutionalism, which is different than the British tradition, where because it's a set of customs that go back in time beyond which anyone can remember, there's not a discrete moment to appeal to. What, you know, Edmund Burke defended the British Constitution, said it was, it was a great constitution because it reflected the wisdom of ages. It didn't have a single author it wasn't made at a particular moment. It's made across time because several generations' wisdom is way, way, way better, he thought, than any individual group of people. But you start to get this idea in the United States of, no, we had a moment and there were these people and they breathed a certain kind of authority into it. And and nothing about that was inevitable. Maybe, I mean, it, it seems easy to see why it happened, but that doesn't just spring forth right away. It it takes this activity of debating the constitution for it to come into focus.
1: Hmm. So you have these ideas emerging of the founding fathers or the, the, the original ratifiers of the constitution and the, the special powers inherent in that, that group of folks. And then this idea of, are we today interpreters of the constitution or is our job really to read the constitution more cleverly? But all the answers are there. We just have to read it carefully. Is that fair? You kind of have this trifecta emerging?
0: And one of the great complaints that people have about our culture of constitutional veneration is that we often hide, people will complain. And this would be true of no matter which side of the political spectrum one is on, that people often hide what are innovative, new, creative readings of the Constitution behind the supposed authority of what the past requires or laid down. So somebody will invent a new reading of the Constitution and then claim that actually this is just what the framers intended or what the Constitution's words rightfully understood mean. And to a lot of people, there's, there's, a, there's a subterfuge quality to this, but also a lack of maturity, that there should be a way in which we kind of recognize where the Constitution runs out and have a fuller debate about what we ought to do at that moment. The debate around the Second Amendment seems particularly
1: guilty of that, where it's the reading of the the strange punctuation and, well, a militia. Do we need a militia these days? What do they mean by militia? Firearms are different. There's there's so much historical context I think that is swirled around in that debate a lot uh, more so than at least the other amendments that you see put in the headlines. At the very least, I think.
0: Absolutely, I think I think our modern debate over the Second Amendment, just as you said, really brings that to the fore in a powerful and immediate way. I mean, all the questions, what do you do with an old constitution from the 18th century that was devised with not just certain purposes in mind, but and, and not just certain understandings of technology in mind, but also particular understandings of how rep- Republican government worked and what it meant to be free that have undergone dramatic transformations themselves. Um, and it's, it's the same problem you face in all forms of historical interpretation. If you're trying to interpret a text written a long time ago to properly understand what that text was saying at its, at its moment of original authorship, you have to recognize all the assumed things beneath the surface that presupposed what the person was, was writing and saying. You can't just look at the words. You have to kind of recapture a whole worldview and imagination. And, and there's a way in constitutional debate where we talk about the authority of the past, but it's always the past as seen through the present, which ends up just distorting the past. But the past continues to serve this authoritative function of trumping the president. So it works in complex ways, but the Second Amendment debate shows that very well.
1: The National Bank and, and Alexander Hamilton's involvement of that, that seemed to me to be a particularly interesting use case, I guess, for this whole debate. Can you just give us a little bit of an idea of of what happened when that debate occurred? Because it seems like it strikes at the heart of this, where, correct me if I'm wrong, the Constitution didn't mention anything like a national bank. But then The country realized, well, we need some way to deal with the debt and uh, strengthen our currency and so forth. And so up sprung this idea, this national bank. How did that play out in the debating world back then? The
0: debate over the national bank is almost certainly the most important constitutional debate of the decade following the Constitution's drafting for a whole variety of reasons. The national bank is. Um, one of the signature features of Alexander Hamilton's ambitious financial program to salvage American finances and put them on more secure footing. Extraordinarily controversial, divides the nation along regional lines and raises a lot of concerns about what kind of nation it will be, agricultural, commercial, how much favor will be given to banking, so on and so forth. So one of the ways that opponents of the bank challenge it, Is by claiming that it's unconstitutional. Not just that the bank is bad and will do bad things for America, but that it's not allowed by the US Constitution. And the argument is, as James Madison famously laid out at the beginning of the bank, that what essentially is the United States Constitution, again getting back to um, we shouldn't just assume there are straightforward answers to that question, his answer is it is essentially a government of limited and enumerated powers. His point being, The only powers that the national government has are those that are clearly enumerated. So we talked earlier about enumerated rights. Now we're getting the problem of enumerated powers. What can the federal government do? Can it only do the things laid out and expressly enumerated? Well, Article I of the Constitution, which lays out how the legislative branch will work, in Article I, Section 8, there is an enumerated list of federal legislative powers, things that the federal government can legislate on. And then at the end of the list, so again, we're starting to see ways in which this debate mirrors earlier ones we talked about. The end of that list is punctuated by what's called the Necessary and Proper Clause, in which it says, Congress shall also have power to make all laws necessary and proper to carry out the foregoing powers, or in other words, all the powers on the list, and all other powers vested in the government of the United States of America. So we have a list, and then we have a clause saying, and you also get all other powers that are necessary and proper. So what does that mean, necessary and proper? And we see in the bank debate that justice had been foreshadowed in the ratification debates. I mentioned how anti-federalists constantly complained. This constitution is so vaguely written, it could mean anything or nothing. So what a disaster. Necessary and proper, what does that mean? Exactly, and who gets to decide? Is it just whatever Congress decides is necessary at the given moment? So people who follow Madison, predominantly from the South, predominantly from slaveholding regions, who are concerned about what Hamilton's financial plan might mean for the new United States, make just those arguments. You know, necessary has to mean something like indispensable. You actually can't execute the power without these additional powers. It can't just be things that are convenient because pretty soon it becomes a blank check to do whatever you want. Here, those who are defending the bank, arguing with Madison, now call back to the very things Madison had said during the ratification debates, about how the constitution was necessarily unfinished. Human language was imperfect and never supple enough to capture things in precise detail. And they deploy those arguments against him and say, what is the necessary and proper clause? But reminder that we as Congress are going to have to figure out a bunch of things to do legislatively that could not have been preordained by the Constitution.
1: So Madison's own words are being used against him just a few years after he said them?
0: Yes, and there's one remarkable moment where this happens quite vividly. This is also a period when they're beginning to appeal and create that founding moment I talked about, one of the ways they're doing that is they begin quoting things that had been said during the ratification debates. They actually had long speeches where they just read long quotes from the ratification debates on the floors of Congress. Among the things they read from are the Federalist Papers, which are also now extraordinarily famous, but at the time of ratification, were just one of many briefs in favor of the Constitution that were mostly published in New York newspapers. Well, one Congressman from New York, John Lawrence, Reads Federalist 44, which is the Federalist paper that talks about how to interpret the necessary and proper clause and explains the reasons why. There are different ways to read it, but it suggests that a more expansive reading is required. John Lawrence reads this on the floor of Congress to rebut what Madison is saying. Madison wrote Federalist 44. John Lawrence didn't know that. He thought Alexander Hamilton, his friend, had. So here's Lawrence reading what he thinks is Alexander Hamilton from 1788 to refute James Madison in 1791, but he's actually reading James Madison from 1788, refuting James Madison in 1791. And James Madison is sitting there, listening to this, the only one in the room perhaps aware that his past and present statements are being placed beside each other in this way. The original gotcha moment. Precisely. That's interesting.
1: So this this all circles around what today we call originalism versus living constitutionalism. And I know now, after this discussion, that that very debate was born instantly after the Constitution was ratified. But originalism, living constitutionalism, in our modern
0: day, what are those two viewpoints? Those are the dominant modes of interpreting the U.S. Constitution today, and they've long been locked in a great debate over how we should approach the Constitution, paradigmatically Supreme Court justices but really all American citizens. What is the right way to deal with this 18th century constitution that we still have in the 21st century? And one way to understand the debate is that it's extraordinarily modern. So we see techniques that look familiar as you you rightfully described shortly after the constitution is ratified, but they're missing a key element that we're wrestling with now, which is really something that informs all modernist moments in religious movements which is a lot of time has passed from the beginning and a lot of things have changed. So what should we do? One answer is, well, that was then, this is now. We have to go forward. And another answer is, no. Now more than ever, we have to get back to what was original and true, our true foundations before they're lost forever. You can see this in lots of different religions. I think you can also see it in our, in our constitutional tradition and it really emerges in the 20th century because you have enough time that has passed that people begin wrestling with, okay, we have this thing that was made for one moment. What is necessary for it to endure? People who side with living constitutionalists say unless it continues to evolve in some particular way, it's not going to endure. It will be brittle and break. And the other side of the argument is no, unless we get back in touch with and enforce the original meaning of the constitution, not only will we lose our constitution, we're going to lose the rule of law itself. So you get this this, this really you know, fundamental debate over how we today, living in the present, living in modern America, should think about our relationship to our constitutional roots and the past. And the history of the Constitution has some really interesting things, I think, to tell us about that, not least that one of the things I try to emphasize in the book I wrote that you mentioned is that the originalism living constitutionalism debate was not necessarily preordained. The reason being that there were different ways of thinking about this problem in the British constitutional tradition that Americans carried over past independence that allowed you to see these things not as opposed, but as two sides of the same coin. So you mentioned Magna Carta. You know There are these things deep in the British past that people constantly referred to. But they also talked about how the constitutional system through the process of the common law was always growing and evolving. And they didn't see these things in tension because as they saw it, new experiences, new debates, new controversies, created new understandings, practices, customs that revealed what actually had always been the case. Oh, we now have a much better way of understanding British rights We now understand what Magna Carta actually was trying to protect. So it was this sort of circular way of connecting past and present. What we have in the United States is something that's more antagonistic, that people don't assume that these things are compatible. They assume that either the Constitution is evolving and growing, or it was fixed at its moment of inception, what originalists argued. The Constitution's meaning is fixed. So part of what interested me is how was it that Americans pulled these things apart and created our way of thinking and arguing about constitutionalism that forced this to be a choice? Because it didn't necessarily have to be. Um, It seems to us like it must be, but how did that happen? And that's that's something that I don't think was preordained, but was created in the years following the Constitution's construction.
1: The parallel between... This debate in, in religions is interesting, and, and do you think that this debate really started emerging in, was it the 20th century, the, the 1900s, when you really started seeing originalism versus living constitutionalism? You're kind of a generation or two past the folks who wrote the Constitution, and so you're playing this game of telephone at that point versus being able to you know, call up Thomas and, and ask him what he actually meant, so to speak. Is it just that simple that they died, their sons and daughters died, and now you're a couple degrees away? And so you really don't know what the the drafter would have thought anymore.
0: It is certainly a very reasonable way to begin thinking about what happened because constitutional discourse changes dramatically in the antebellum era when the so called framing generation dies. Uh, James Madison is the last of the framers. He dies in 1836. Prior to them, you always have kind of the Marshall McLuhan from Annie Hall moment of you make an argument and you claim what the original intent was, and then somebody can actually go find a person who was there. Oh, I know James. We could talk to James. Right. And this this happens in the nullification debate uh, when the when certain states' rights activists are trying to say that the state governments have an authority to not just challenge federal laws but nullify them. And they claim that they are channeling Uh, what James Madison and, and Thomas Jefferson had defended as the original intent of the Constitution in the 1790s. Jefferson is dead, so they can turn Jefferson into whatever they want him to be, these nullifiers in Virginia and South Carolina, but Madison is not dead. This is the late 1820s on into the early 1830s. And Madison becomes an outspoken critic of what the nullifiers are doing. So, What they have to do is they basically have to turn him into an apostate to use religious language. They have to say, oh, we thought you were one of our great founding heroes. We thought you were like Jefferson, but it turns out uh, you're a traitor to the cause. So since you're not going to play along, we'll just throw you to the side and claim that Jefferson is who we're really channeling. But all of that changes when everybody's dead. It becomes this new way of talking. It's about talking about experiences in the late 18th century that people cannot immediately testify to in quite the same way. You then get into the late 19th, early 20th century, that is exacerbated considerably. Um, So that's certainly a big part of it.
1: If I had to ask you for your vote, I'm guessing here, do you fall on the living constitutionalism side of the spectrum here after researching this so in depth?
0: As a historian, what I would primarily emphasize is that we should, I think, just like we should think more deeply about the question, what is the constitution? We should also think more deeply about the relationship between originalism and living constitutionalism, because it's not so much that I'm trying to offer a criticism of originalism as such. It's that I think often originalism as it's defended doesn't fully recognize all of the ways in which the constitutional order, the very way of thinking about constitutionalism was unsettled and different in the 18th century. And often what happens with modern originalists is they presuppose a lot of things about the constitution, things that are pretty central to our modern debates. And they assume that those things must've been true in the 18th century. Can you give us an example? Yeah. So, I mean, well, just one example is what is the constitution itself or what is constitutionalism? So- if you assume that the Constitution is exclusively written, that's just what it is. Then you will go back to the 18th century with a particular vision of the Constitution already in mind. But you might also you might actually be supplying most of the argument, and you might not be taking seriously that at the time the Constitution's meaning is a supposedly being fixed, the people making the Constitution had a different way of thinking about what the Constitution was and how it functioned. And at, at minimum, you need to wrestle with those differences if. The 18th century was thinking about constitutionalism differently than us, and how should originalism or living constitutionalism think about that kind of evolution? So, I mean, there are different levels here. One is: does the Constitution's meaning change? You know, does the right to keep and bear arms, whatever those words mean, or executive power, whatever those words mean, did they? You know, what did they mean in 1787, 1788, 1791? And should we or should we not enforce that meaning today? But beneath meaning. Is the thing itself, the thing possessing the meaning, was the constitution itself the kind of thing in 1787 or 1788 or 1791 that we take for granted today? Does it matter that very few people then thought that the Supreme Court would be the final word, and today everyone assumes they will? Does it matter that people assume that lots and lots of rights that were fundamental and constitutional didn't have to be enumerated? And now we we live in a world where we tend to really emphasize the importance of enumeration. All of these questions that I think get in a much deeper way at the Constitution's core character, sort of its essential nature, there are interesting differences between the 18th and the 19th century that the originalism-living constitutional debate often papers over. And I think a better way of having the debate would be wrestling with those differences, because it would really then force us... And I think a more serious and profound way to think about if things have changed, do we really want to return to how they used to think? And if not, then why doesn't that justify a less originalist way of doing constitutionalism than we sometimes defend?
1: You go down a lot of different paths as I think about that. I mean, we, we have a much larger, more involved federal government today than we did back then. The executive has a lot more authority today than it did back then, and and we might apply our modern setup to thinking about it back then, and that that's that's wrong from the get go. You're you're thinking about it in a in a paradigm that they wouldn't even
0: even imagine necessarily. Yeah, and a related, you said that you liked the system analogy. Well, why don't we just start there? You could argue the most originalist thing to do is to not regard the Constitution as. Scripture as textual command handed down from the past, but instead as principally a system. So, not something that you see in textual terms, but something you see in structural terms, where you, you think of it like you, the solar system. And, okay, what, what, what does it mean to be an originalist that does that? You presumably would, would emphasize a very different way of approaching the Constitution today, probably by giving more authority back to Congress to be a constitutional agent then has now fallen on the courts. Um, maybe, maybe that's good, maybe that's bad. My point being, that's different. And that's, that's a very different set of questions than what did these words mean back then? That's a question, what, did, what was the constitution back then? And what does it mean to remain faithful to that constitution?
1: This has been really fun. I've really enjoyed the conversation. My my final question for you, Jonathan, I always like to end with, and that is just what lesson or lessons have you learned from your study of the constitution
0: that you think can be applied to today's world? A big and good question, one that I think my previous answers in a lot of ways already spoke to, which is what I'm trying to above all emphasize is that to have the richest, fullest, best set of constitutional debates to ensure that our constitutional system endures in a way that is healthy and works requires not taking things for granted, not simply assuming that what's obvious to us about the Constitution can't be questioned. Because if you study the history seriously, you find a lot of people saying what we would regard as strange things about the Constitution, what it means, what it means to have a constitution, certainly a lot of things that are very similar. So, I mean, it's it's there are plenty of continuities, but you find a lot of interesting differences, and this can be the great value of history. History can help unlock self-understanding. Why are we the way we are? Why do we do things the way we do? Are we doing them for the right reasons? If you take them for granted, you don't ask those questions. If you find different people living under a similar set of arrangements, talking differently, thinking differently, being differently, You then have to ask yourself, are our ways better? What are the justifications for them? Clearly, they're not just preordained and essential in the way we have to do things. So a lot of people think our constitutional system is unhealthy at the moment, that the rot has set in that we need some kind of course correction. Okay. One of the ways we can ensure that that debate is had in a good and productive way is to see all of the things that the history shows us, that the roads not traveled, the ways of thinking that were once obvious that have now completely disappeared, and wonder if maybe our own way of doing things isn't quite as perfect as we thought it was.
1: Well, Jonathan Ganap, professor at Stanford in the Department of History, thank you so much for joining. Really appreciate it. And for everyone listening, to find out more about Jonathan and his work, visit history. Dot Stanford.edu, dot Slash People, Slash Jonathan Ganap, that's G I E N A P P. Jonathan, thanks for joining. Really appreciate
0: all the time. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a production of Riches and Power, hosted by Alex Dubay, edited by Sean Dooley,
1: copyright 2023 by Wesley Capital, LLC.